Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of The Discard Pile where we're going to continue our journey for our top 50. On today's episode we're counting down from number 20 to 16 and as always I'm Jim. I'm Abby. And I'm Robin. And you might feel a little bit different with this episode. We are coming at you remotely. So this is our first virtual podcast because a very belated congratulations to Robin. Thank you very much. New father. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty surreal, but uh, I'm learning to not sleep as much, so it's nice. Fantastic. Playing a real life version of the game of life, am I right? Pursuit of (laughs) happiness. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Pursuit of happiness. Yeah. Okay, Robin, starting with number 20. Number 20 is a weird one. Yeah, I'm surprised it made the list. I, I had just finished playing it when this list was being made, and it really made an impression on me. And And I feel like it taught me a lot about what I'm looking for in these kind of top 50 games. Uh, the game is called The Light in the Mist. We talked about it on our Escape Room Games episode. It's basically just a deck of tarot cards that uh, you use to solve puzzles. There is a bunch of major arcana, and each of those is a is a puzzle to solve. And then you use the rest of the tarot deck in different ways, gaining information or maybe building like a a little tableau in front of you or doing word problems, uh, things like that to solve various, various puzzles. Um, I love puzzle games, which I'm sure we'll get to a little bit more on this list coming up, but this one was weird because it was just an item, you know, you didn't need an app. Uh, there is a book that comes with it where you can check your answer, but you don't even need that. Every puzzle, the output is a word and it all just kind of makes sense when you solve the the puzzle and i really just love that idea of things that are yes it's a board game like you know it's a deck of cards it's a bunch of puzzles that you can play and share with people but in some ways it's also just an, an item that i will have for the rest of my life and get to show other people how cool you know uh this kind of like relic uh, can be yeah ab have you played through any of us yet i have not played through but planning to very soon perfect perfect uh yeah i played through about half of this before uh we split i think we got through half of the yeah we got through half puzzles before the day ended because that was just how encaps no engrossing uh this game was uh it sets you up with a lovely narrative in my opinion which uh i don't think any of the other players would share that opinion but um i think that's really the key for me for holding this whole game together from being just an activity i know we played through a couple of others which i'll call puzzle books and uh it's just managed to take that form and kind of advanced it both on the puzzle format as well as adding that bit of narrative to kind of carry that tarot deck concept through to the end uh i know that's probably more controversial with our group uh but i appreciated the the attempt of a storyline i'm not going to say it was a great storyline but i think the narrative was um was very much needed to kind of pull me into uh what was seen on the cards and what the overall arcing gameplay was and it kind of ties it all the puzzles together It attempts to. Again, I think the actual, uh, without spoiling it too much, I think the actual execution of tying in the narrative with the puzzles was a bit light. So as Robin mentioned in the Puzzle Escape Room game podcast, 
ultimately you're trying to find a word or a list of words and usually those words have a uh, meaning to either the previous chapter or the next passage being read in the narrative and because you can play this game however you like i think there's one entry puzzle and one exit actually no that's not true there's many entry puzzles but only one final puzzle uh the narrative at times doesn't seem uh you're you're kind of getting glimpses of this person's life uh over this particular uh experience you're going through rather than like a cohesive uh linear storyline so i think that's where it falters quite a bit yeah the the way they're woven together is not super strong but yeah that's not the part that interests me so much and yeah i i really like the idea of doing more innovative and kind of physical puzzles and and this is just the one that is interesting me right now or has interested me when i made this list and i think this could get replaced by hopefully a different puzzle game of the same kind of ilk in the future uh, but for now this holds the spot of that really tactile really physical puzzle game that doesn't need an app and you can just plop it in front of someone and say here let's do some puzzles together check out this cool thing um, it's not really a game it is more of an activity for sure but uh, it's cool and i like it and i just i like that it's different than anything else on this list anyway that's my number 20 the light in the mist my number 20 has already been mentioned on the previous episode of this podcast and that is spirit island um i think i might have it highest out of the three of us which is kind of amazing and to me shows the strength of the game itself because ab and robin know how much i dislike cooperative games in general but yet sometimes he likes them (laughs) yeah uh spirit island and orleans invasion which was my number 21 game uh are both two cop games i really enjoy largely because your the game is heavy enough or the game at Every state you're playing it has enough information where I feel no one person can quarterback. You can kind of have an idea of, oh, I'm the water spirit. I need colonizers to be on the edge of the island for me to be able to do anything. If people can figure out how to do that, that would be great before, you know, it gets around to my turn. That level I'm fine with when I'm playing Pandemic or any other co-op games to that ilk. Even like Arkham Horror back in the game, it felt like a like I would have a much better time playing it solo than as a group. You know, it's it's total open information out there. There's not enough of it to be overly confusing that I can't figure out the optimal solution for each individual role in those games where Spirit Island throws a whole bunch of information at you at once. There's multiple ways you can win a scenario. So it really emphasizes uh, figuring out the real strengths of your team and not just mm-hmm. individual spirits, but like comboing elements with between your spirit and another player's spirit to really figure out the puzzle of the game. And uh, I think that's what really shines through as a co-op game. Yeah, it's so complex that it deters quarterbacking. I, I mean, if you have a quarterbacking player that insists on doing it, they can probably uh, do it in this too if they want to like process all that information. But it's it's so nice to just discuss what would be the what are priority areas and everybody has a different way to tackle it you know everybody's player powers is different so like every every turn it's like a different use of your powers yeah it keeps it super fresh i never really thought about it this way but 
in a lot of games where you're playing co-ops, if the puzzle is too easy for some players and too hard for other players, um, I feel like I, or just like people that have played lots of board games in general, end up being the person that feels like the puzzle is maybe too easy. And so they finish their section of the puzzle and immediately look over to another player. And maybe there's going to be no quarterbacking. You'll let the player decide to do whatever they want. But it's a feel-bad moment if you have played 20 times and they've played twice. And you're kind of like, well, I know you're making a mistake, but how do I navigate telling you that? And this occurs because I've my puzzle is so easy that solving it is obvious. In both these games, Orléans and in Spirit Island, the puzzle is so complex, you're still working on your own puzzle. If someone says, can you come help me with this? I don't know what to do. Sure, I'll look over and I'll say, hey, yeah, maybe we could do this together. But otherwise, I have my own things to think about. And like, there's enough lines of play that I'm never getting bored, which I think is a, a key to not only stopping quarterbacking, but also making everyone feel like we have equal opportunity to make choices in the game. And it's just like a right amount of difficult Spirit Island. Um, is, is, yeah. is... I wanted to like kind of interrupt you when you said complex, because I've been really trying to stay away from that word with this game in case it scares people off, because it's not overly complex. It's You just have a lot of information or... To really understand your spirit takes a lot of work rather than, you know, it's not exactly rules heavy or an extremely Lacerda-like game by any means. No, that's true. But it creates puzzles that are fun to solve. I like Pandemic. There's no problem with that. But sometimes the turns are obvious, you know. And in this, there are turns that are obvious in Spirit Island too, but they're much more few and far between. Whereas in Pandemic, Pandemic, you're just like, you need to go over there and take those cubes off the board or else we lose. So if you're deciding to do anything else, I think it's a mistake. And I'm going to tell you that because I've played this enough to know that this is kind of our only line of play. Um, and I like that Spirit Island doesn't do that. Me too. And that was my number 20 game, Spirit Island. My number 20 is something, that, a game that we talked about on a previous episode where we talked about a game with a twist. And this is a auction game by Stefan Feld named Strasbourg. And in this game... Uh, I think the, the main twist of it is that you have a finite value in your personal deck. And with that value, uh, so you have cards between, uh, I think, two and six uh, value, and you can draw as much as you want during each round, but you can't save cards for later. So you have five rounds of bidding, and you're spending these cards. So you can bid a lot one round and use fewer cards the next round, but you have to balance that throughout the whole game and you're bidding for placement in the city and resources that you can use to transfer to points. Really, at the end of the game, you're trying to get certain goals. You're trying to attain certain goals that you have at the start of the game, and it's really tense in terms of, yeah, I think how much value to bid, to bid on and watching to see what other players may want as well. If multiple people bid on a certain time in the round, uh, there's different rewards for different players. So first place gets all three rewards. Uh, second place gets either a resource or a placement in the city. And the third one gets like a, just like a resource. So I know, very hard game to, to explain because there's a lot of interconnected elements in it. It is, at the core, a bidding game. But what stands out to me and why it's my number 20 is that it is one of the most tense bidding games I, I own. Uh, and it really is is unforgiving. 
because if you lose a bid that's like crucial for your plan, uh, yeah, it's very hard to recover from. It's such a classic Euro, or not a classic Euro, but like old school Euro mechanic. It reminds me of Bus, where you know, you're, you, there, there has to be a disclaimer before you start the game with a new player. You're like, don't mm-hmm. use all your cards. <laughs> yeah, don't do this or else you're done. <laughs> you're, yeah. You can't, like, you can draw as much as you want. Um, so yeah. you could draw half your deck in the first two rounds and then have three rounds of terrible bids. Yeah. Um, but that might actually work out for you because your plan might hinge around winning a few key auctions early um, and kind of coasting for the rest of the game. So it's yeah, a it's a really game cool. of yeah I think it's uh twenty five auctions I want to say like throughout the game and you don't have to participate in all of them uh, but if you choose to participate you're um yeah using some of that finite value you have in your deck yeah it is a classic uh a classic felt a classic classic felt where it is punishing at times and you can instantly see when someone's plan has gone awry when they lose an auction that they meant to win or maybe they placed in an auction not really understanding the full repercussions of what they just did the board play is fantastic is well i would say that there's a bit of a tile placement area control area influence area control yeah um, yeah mechanism mechanism to it to just really slide that knife in quite a bit deeper than just beating someone out in an auction the choices are are crucial every single choice you make feels important in this game and although it sounds intimidating it's it's also very fun to play when you're trying to figure out the best way to even approach the auction round knowing that you have two opportunities to, to win a boot and if you don't do it this round then it's one opportunity and you know you've played all your highest cards. It, it creates tense moments for sure. Yeah, there are boots in this game. So that's, a, that's in the plus column for sure. But <laughs> that's really what boosted it from number 21 to number 20. And landed squarely in this episode. Yeah, Concordia had boots. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, that is my number 20 game, Strasbourg. My number 19 game is a crazy game that definitely isn't as good as the games around it on this list but i love it for a bunch of other reasons uh that game is feudum feudum is a weird euro game uh where you wander around a board collecting points and doing various activities to collect resources and score as many points as you can the twist in feudum is that there are six guilds uh and each guild can allow you to exchange resources for other resources or buy various effects or give you player powers things like that and every guild is slightly attached to the guild that is adjacent to it. So there's six guilds. Each guild feeds into the next guild and then is also fed into by the guild in front of it. Actions you take will move resources around through these guilds, slowly making them uh, more powerful or cheaper to buy certain resources from. And all these guilds are interacted with by the players on the board. Each player can dedicate themselves to working in a guild. uh, And then when you take certain actions on the board, you influence how well that guild is doing. Each player can have uh, up to three different workers in various guilds, and by doing more actions in those guilds can create more points uh, for them at the end of the game. So there's kind of like an area majority in each of the six guilds of who has the most actions 
completed in those guilds, which will score them points. You move around the map and you attack each other and build fortresses and farms and things like that, which will always also score you points. Or you can go up into the mountains and gather contracts to travel the map and and score various points that way. It's it's a really weird, complicated game, but what has really drawn me to it is the beautiful art and then the way that the game kind of expresses itself in two ways. One is those guilds interacting with each other, which in retrospect isn't doesn't work as well as it could work and really was more hyped uh, than it ended up being. But then the other is like this card play system where every turn you select four cards and then those are the only four actions you can do for that turn. Unless um, you pay a salt peter, then you can play a fifth card. That's right. I'm interrupting Robin because, yeah, that, that's just the game. It's exceptions upon rules upon exceptions upon rules. Teaching this game is basically impossible. Yeah, it's probably why I haven't played it. It's just like when I tried to read the rules during the Kickstarter, I was like, I'm not going to attack this game. No. But like, it definitely has a table presence and I'm willing to give it a shot, but I'm guessing it's more of an experience. It's than... more of an experience. Yeah. I think this is Cones of Dunshire, the board game. Um, it's very much seen... like that. Like as soon as I got to the point in the rules where there was a rosary bead on a chicken. Yes. I was like, hmm, that's, that's a little conesy. <laughs> Yeah, I it, feel like we could have an episode entirely dedicated to why this game should work but doesn't. Because in small bite-sized chunks, it's doing interesting things or even fairly normal things. But for some reason, they just kind of don't flow well with the other mechanics. Um, I want to love the guild system. I love a closed market where or a closed system rather where resources are cycling from one place to another and depending on where they finish up or where they are on your turn they mean something differently i love programming actions selecting the four cards or maybe five cards i love traveling around in a little, little submarine boat thing and fighting monsters but for some reason this game just does not pull it together in a way you want a euro game and once you realize this is just some fever dream of a Euro game, well, American game disguised as a Euro game, I think, then you realize that it's just meant to be enjoyed. And once you reveal the wizard behind the machine, it's much more fun to, to absorb. I would love to see a an implementation of that guild system that actually works though. Like it sounds like such an interesting game mechanism if you base the thing around that. Yeah, it's yeah. very push pull. Mm -hmm. Um it reminds me a bit of Crisis's machines, but you know, Crisis doesn't let you use generated output as input to an the next machine. It's if that rule didn't exist and it could go round and round in circles. It's all kind of stamped by the official rules video which is a very pleasant British person walking you through the entire 47 minutes of role of the game and just the juxtaposition of how easy, breezy, laid back the rules teaches versus what you're actually trying to learn is kind of a meme upon itself now. It is wild, and I love this game. Let me say that. It didn't turn up on my top 50, but I would never say no to this game because it, it's like playing a study in Emerald First Edition at 2 a.m. on a very long convention day. It is just madness in a box. Yeah, I don't recommend buying this game. 
Um, but I do recommend going online and looking at pictures. And uh, if we're ever at a convention together, I would happily play with you and teach you this game. And we can laugh about how crazy and silly it is. And because of that, some of my favorite memories have come from this game. And that's why it's here on the list. That's my number 19, Feudum. My number 19 has already been talked about as well. It is Cryptid. Cryptid is by far my favorite deduction game as I scan my list to see if there's any other deduction games above it. No, yes, Cryptid is my number one deduction game. Uh, deduction is my thing. I love to deduce both socially and logically. It is so compact for a game of its weight to a point where I introduced it to my family and left my game there. And all I have is an empty box now. And I think this is not the first time it has happened with Cryptid. That and Cabo are two games that uh, I always end up just leaving behind because whoever I introduce it to just fall in love with the game. So yes, unlike Feudum, I highly recommend buying a copy of Cryptid. This is also on my list, uh, a little lower down. It's an amazing, amazing game. I highly recommend it. It is always, if someone is looking to learn a deduction game, this is this is my go-to. It's so great. Have we played a lot with the advanced rules? The advanced rules with the negatives can get a bit taxing for a game that's supposed to last like 20 minutes to half an hour. So that's the only caveat I really have about this game. I think it's it's a great intro to deduction as well. Like I, th- I think people start to get it pretty quickly. You know, the basic mode. It is deceptively simple um there's a lot you can kind of deduce just from the board state but i think people catch on pretty quick to this one it's now to a point with our group that the initial two placement cubes can actually reveal the game in and of itself at that level like we're starting to get a bit of analysis paralysis just by placing those two starting cubes because we understand a lot more about what that is telling everyone else even though it's a negative piece of information yeah usually it's like try to get the you try to place it so it's the least helpful as possible Mm -hmm. and that was my number 19 game cryptid my number 19 game is a older title uh was out of print and i don't know it came back into print but not a huge print run as well so it's definitely not high on most people's list but it's called ginkopolis Everything I read about it made me want to seek it out. So I ended up finding a copy uh, when it was deep out of print, like a French edition imported it. And I really loved it. It it's, has a lot of things I really like. Like one of the things is simultaneous play, uh, which is really just everyone drafts at the same time, but you reveal it one by one. So it's a pretty quick play time. It usually takes like about an hour-ish with three to three to four players. It doesn't really change much with more player count. And you are building a city together uh, of three types of buildings. So uh, green, yellow, and blue. And each one starts to create different zones, which are kind of area control zones. So if it's a three zone wide of yellow, um, you want to start controlling it because you get scoring uh, based on the number of control markers in that zone. So say you finish first and there's seven markers in, in total in the zone, you get seven points. Second place gets the total mark, the amount of score that the first place player puts in there. So say the first place player has five tokens of the seven, second place gets five. So it's really interesting balance between how much you want to invest in a zone, because if you win it and you win it by a lot, you're actually giving the second place player a lot of points. Um, so 
really there's an air control element, but you can also score a lot from triggering bonuses during the game. Because every card you play that builds the city adds to your tableau and starts triggering bonuses on actions that you take. And some of the later cards will be endgame scoring as well. Um, so say like you want to build up a certain action, so when you take it, you actually trigger multiple bonuses. There's a lot to think about in this game, and it has a lot that I like, which is really that card play and that ever-shifting board state that you have to keep in mind. Yeah, I really enjoy this game a lot. I think it just slipped out of my top 50. Yeah, multi-use cards and error control. Two very, very interesting mechanisms for uh, that I enjoy uh, using in a game. Uh, and this one can be quite devastating because you're trying to build up a bit of a, well, kind of an engine. It is an engine, yeah. yeah. Because you, you want to stack bonuses on actions that you might want to be taking a lot during the game, right? Exactly, yeah. There's There's only a, like three types of actions. So really every turn you're triggering bonuses. You're triggering and you kind of want to index on something that you're trying to focus on. But the map itself where you're actually vying for area control is also kind of dictated by the players themselves so you can grow the map you can build on top of someone yeah you can like cut off or like if you you have a you know seven wide region of blue you can actually and it's all connected by one tile in the middle you can actually put a red tile on top of the blue and really split that region so it's like there's a lot of changing of the board state which is really cool and and yeah it is player controlled like the size of the zones uh, are really player controlled yeah, so it is deceivingly simple to play. Um, the only thing that I don't really like in this game is like the hidden victory point stuff. Uh, but I guess, you know, in an air control game, it's always uh, hit the person who's coming in first. So that kind of prevents that from happening, I guess. Yeah, I think it's mostly just to not, well, not hinder the speed of the gameplay. Because really it is like a quicker draft. And if you have to worry about you know, who is leading at a particular time. I think that would kind of slow it down. Have you played this one, Robin? I have not played this one. Well, let's start a cable on Board Game Arena. Oh, it's on Board Game Arena? Huh, I did not know that. You guys have talked about this for a long time. It's generally not my style of game, but you've always talked about it so highly that I definitely would give it a try. I think you'd at least appreciate the, the card play. Yeah, I guess I've seen lots of pictures and it was more the area control and the abstractness of the board is what turned me off. So yeah, the card play, I'm sure I would I would love. Yeah, it's really about building uh, an engine and figuring out how to turn it into points. Like that, that's you can actually win the game just by having a really good point engine developed. I've actually seen games where that that has been the winning factor. Like sure, you win some zones or like, you know, don't let someone run away with the, the area control but you can largely develop a point engine just on in your cards and that was my number 19 game Gingopolis. yeah unlike feudum my next game is a game people should definitely buy it's incredibly cheap incredibly fun great for all audiences and just very silly and that game is pictomania this is the replacement for pictionary in my collection not that there needs to be a replacement for all those classic games, but this one is so good that I will never get rid of it and would always be happy to play. In Pictomania, you are simultaneously all drawing various words and trying to guess what everyone else has drawn. Uh, the one 
twist on the formula is that you're all doing it at the same time, obviously, unlike Pictionary, which is generally only a couple people drawing. Literally everyone playing is drawing at once. And the answers are right in front of you. There's between three and six cards, depending on which version you have, sat in front of you, and each card has six words on it. But the words are all very similar. So it might be like sandwich, hot dog, hamburger, cheeseburger. And so you know it's one of those words, but you're not sure which one it is. So the person is frantically drawing and maybe not drawing so well because they're also paying attention to what everyone else is drawing. And as quickly as they can, they draw their word. And then as soon as you're done drawing, you take your hand of cards and you place one card in front of each player to indicate which word you think they have. Each word has a little symbol beside it. And then you put the card of the associated symbol in front of that player. Then everyone's done drawing. Everyone's passed out all their cards in real time. Someone's picked up a timer and flipped it over in the middle. And once that timer is over, everyone stops and we count up points. You flip over the deck of cards and whoever was the first one to give you the right card to show that they knew what you were drawing gets three points. And then the second person gets two and the last person gets one. And then you play again. And the game really works well because all the cards that you need to draw or all the words you need to draw are absolutely insane. They'll be like universe, galaxy, solar system, you know, Milky Way. There'll be all these words that look very, very similar when you draw them. And having to figure out how to differentiate your word from all the other ones is what makes it fun. It's it's a silly game. It's just Pictionary, but times a thousand of insanity. And I love it. Yeah, it's such a frantic experience. <laughs> yes. When you kind of clue into what's going on and how you can get points, like you really should be drawing and guessing at the same time and like keeping an eye on everybody. Yeah, it's really, really frantic, but it's such a unique experience because you're trying to deal with two sides of your brain at the same time. Yeah, I don't like drawing games where you have to draw well. And this game just needs you to draw well enough that everyone can look at your picture and go, that's a truck. I know what it is. <laughs> that's it. That's all you got to do. You know, they need to be able to differentiate between go-kart, truck, race car, airplane, and helicopter. It's a vehicle. It has wheels. Is it a truck? Is it a car? That's all you need to be able to differentiate. And then as long as people are paying attention, though, you'll get points and they'll get points, which is great. But you need to do it really fast. Yeah, I enjoy this one. It's one of the only drawing games where I like how little detail there are on the actual drawing prompts because, you know, you do have to try to figure out how you can make a galaxy distinguished enough from a universe in this one. Is this one of the games where you were like, you should just play it without scoring? Or do you think scoring is a key element to tying this game together? Uh, you have to score it, I think. Yeah, you. the only time you don't have to score it is if everyone is really on the same page that you're, you understand. Like if you've played 10 times, there's almost no reason to score it because... You're, you all understand what you're doing. Like you just, you score the round instead of like the full game. Um, mm -hmm. But yes, I, I, like Amy said, it's better to score it. It reveals more what is good and, and who is able to do well. That's my number 18 game, real-time Pictionary, aka Pictomania. My number 18 game is another classic implemented in 2010. This is Twa. Uh, Twa is a Euro game where after rereading its description and preparation for this podcast, I realized this is kind of a game that pulls together a lot of mechanisms that I've been trying to figure out how they would work in a given game design. Uh, and that is dice placement, where your dice are workers, kind of. And when those workers or dice are specialized, 
In Twarf, there are three kinds of dice in this game, or people or occupations these dice represent. I'm just going to call them white, red, and yellow, but they represent kind of the religious people. That's the white dice. Red mm -hmm. is the soldiers or the military, and yellow, uh, I think they're artists, but traditionally I just think of them as the commerce part of the game if you need money get some yellow dice and at the beginning of the game you're kind of drafting spots on uh, the board which indicate which dice you get so if you take the six red spot with one of your meeples you're going to get a red die uh, if you take the one six yellow spot you're going to get a yellow die into your pool uh, and then the round starts with everyone rolling their dice together and the key part of this is you're all going to have some subset of colors, unless it's totally insane and someone somehow ended up with four yellow dice. You're going to have a mixture of colored dice. And to execute um, abilities on cards or actions on certain parts of the board or to deal with the horrifying events plaguing Twa at the time, you're going to have to spend some of these dice. And you can use your dice as well as other people's dice. Uh, so if you need... 12 pit values of red to combat an event card you can just pay to use someone else's red die and they no longer have access to it for that turn there's a lot going on in this euro game but at heart it's it's really that dice placement that really gets me going there's an element of hidden in-game scoring which i love about this game i'm always constantly trying to figure out what people are going for to determine their hidden scoring in-game goal because you can also partake in that if you figure it out like you score all the goals right you score all the goals in the game so mm -hmm. each player is dealt a goal so some of them won't be in the end it'll, it'll just be things like for having excess money in the game you score a certain amount of points or mm -hmm. if you defeat x number of events by majority you'll get a certain number of points so um, trying to figure out what's in the game and what's not in the game can really decide who wins or loses. Yeah, I haven't played this one enough. It is on my shelf. I try to bring it out every once in a while or play it on BGA, but it, it never quite lands the way I, I'm hoping it does. So I think more plays would would get it there for me, but I just haven't had them yet. Yeah, I used to be quite high on it. And I, I do still like it and I would play it. It just never got the, to the table enough. It ends up being like deceptively long of a game. Maybe that's just the players I played it with. Um, but maybe that will decrease with more plays. But I, I think the puzzle itself is really interesting. Like like what Jim said, like there's a lot of different dice placement cards that could be in the game. Um, it, it you change it every time so it's really finding the combos in the current setup for me that was like the best part of my plays of it yeah i think uh this is so high on my list because you introduced me to it and uh once i found out it's on board game arena as many games are i just kept playing it and kept like learning little things about the game that made it even more enjoyable than mm -hmm. my last time i played it uh, I think I actually I like, would like it more on BGA actually because of the I don't know it, like for for me it's like it's it is quite AP inducing if you have any inclination of AP in your in players that you play with it will likely take a long time on their turns yeah for sure and that's probably why I find it so fun because I think the majority of my games have been online he says as he queues up for a game immediately and that was my number eighteen game toi.
my number 18 game is, I believe, one we've talked about before on this podcast, which is Lisboa by Vital Lacerda. Yeah, this is my highest rated game from Vital, and which surprised me actually making this list because I always had Gallerus quite a bit higher, but recent plays of Lisboa have kind of cemented it as probably my favorite of his. It is the classic Vitalis Herda, very complex game, but very simple action selection mechanism. On your turn, you're just playing one card. And like, depending where you play the card on your player board or on the main game board, you can select different types of actions. And there are six main actions in the game and some optional actions as well, but really it's about setting up many turns in advance. And the game is about rebuilding Lisboa after an earthquake in, I think, 1755, followed by a tsunami and then days of fires afterwards. So the city was totally destroyed and you are clearing rubble and rebuilding the city. And that is a very simple explanation for a very complex game, like very heavy game, and one that bears repeat plays because I think every game plays out quite differently. There's different endgame scoring opportunities. It, it is like quite tactical in that you have to watch where other players are playing uh, in the city and kind of piggyback off that for, for scoring as well. That There is a bit of like an area majority aspect to the board state, but also like setting up your production engine um, as well. So a lot of interconnected components. Yeah, I'd really love to play this. I played it once, but it <laughs> it didn't click that first time. So I, I'd love to try this again. And yeah, hopefully someday soon we will. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to be part of AB's second round of teaching of this game where he probably learned what didn't connect for the other yeah the first one was maybe a little rough like it definitely like robin is part of the first playthrough where everybody it is like quite opaque and the second round i was able to explain why you do certain actions a little bit better certain actions will set you up for other ones like so there's never really an action that's like a dead end in the game which is what makes it kind of interesting is that like each turn you're kind of planning okay what do i want to do in a couple turns and working towards that yeah it's a super interesting game a classic lacerda where i felt the rules teach was pretty um pretty easy and then getting into like the actual repercussions of everything was a bit more they're, they're fairly straightforward actions like each thing that you take but um as the game state kind of changes people realize oh like i need to do this in order to score that in order to do this <laughs> so there's there's all these kind of gears turning in everyone's head and there's quite a lot of interaction in terms of the players because like everything that you do is changes the board state for everybody else as you clear more rubble uh, from the city it becomes cheaper and cheaper to build so really the game kind of snowballs to like its end and yeah that was my Number 18 game, Lisboa. My number 17 game is a whole group of games, uh, not just one. And that is a series called Unlock. Unlock is a escape room series that really leans into the fact that you need your phone and you need an app to solve the puzzles. Each one has a, a very unique theme generally or distinct from the other ones. Maybe you're in a submarine or you're a pirate or all sorts of various things haunted mansion um yeah and they all uh build on each other and innovate in new ways to form a series of puzzles that takes about an hour and you feel pretty good and satisfied once you've completed them i like them because yeah they're simple they're easy to play 
If you get stuck, there's hints readily available. They are non-destructible, so you can pass them on to friends and family when you're done with them. And they're relatively cheap and always pretty good. If you're looking to get into an escape room style game, I would highly recommend Unlock as my first recommendation. And if you like your experience with it, there are many and many that you can buy and play for hours on end. Yeah, we've covered this before. My favorite series of escape room ones, just because it is like such a gamut of different experiences. They've done ones that are more like adventure where they're more about the kind of story and you're progressing through it. There are sort of puzzle elements within that, but it's really like focused on a story and they're like really well produced and then ones that are more puzzle based. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of th- things for everybody in this. Yeah. We've talked about this on a previous podcast. So just around the room, any favorite scenarios for unlock? I mean, the most recent thing we all played was the pandemic, which I quite liked. That was very fun, but I, I feel like even the ones that I played from like four or five years ago, I could play again and, and really just not remember all the solutions. So I'm sure there's ones that I loved in the past. Yeah, it's starting to get there for me. Like I, I've kept a lot of the old ones. So yeah, I think I can go back at a certain point. Cool. I just finished up the Ticket to Ride one finally. Yeah, I think it's the weakest of those three, but it was still enjoyable. And uh, even though it was a little easier for sure. Yeah, I really like the Mysterium one. Out of the, I think my the favorite was the Alice in Wonderland one. That was also very good, yes. It was good. It was very hard. Uh, yeah. From what I remember. There was also like the pirate one that was really good, like a lot of different and also kind of like cartoon one I, I was quite into as well. Like a lot of little plays on like cartoon tropes and, and things like that. So I'm always excited to see what they dream up for this series. It's unfortunately the series where I would rather just play solo and I feel like I don't lose out on anything. Yeah, that's fair. I generally am not playing for the difficulty of the puzzles, but just to explore the scenario and enjoy the puzzles with other players. Yeah, sometimes the puzzles get solved before I even see them because they're so easy, which is totally fine. And sometimes it you know, really takes all of us to do them uh, with four people. But that's... Yeah, you know, that's just kind of what you get when you when you play with a higher player count, like you said. Yeah, in most cases, I'm playing this with non board gamer type. Like, I I like using the series as like, hey, this is like a cool experience. Yeah, for and it, I think it can appeal to that like wider audience, which is nice. Yeah, that's my number seventeen. Every unlock game, every single one of them. My number 17 game is my final Lacerda as well. It is Kanban EV, which uh, we've already talked about in a previous podcast of this top 10 nature. Not much more to say about it. I love the different rooms. I love how each department interacts with other departments. There's a whole guise of a certain order where you might want to execute things, but really the game is pretty open-ended. Uh, multiple ways to score as long as you get a seat at the meeting very similar to the engineering work that i've been a part of through my whole career which is why it's really a treat to play in a in a less you know time critical sense my favorite lucerta which i was kind of surprised about i thought it would be the gallerist as well but kanban especially with ev edition just because it looks so darn pretty hits my you know theoretical number one spot for lucertas but my number 17 spot overall yeah kanban is it's a small genre which is a single worker worker placement um 
I mean, I'm thinking like Lahav and and this one are kind of like two of the titles that stand out. Um, there's probably other ones that I'm that I'm kind of forgetting, but like it seems simple. It's like oh, you have one worker and you just move it around every every turn. But it is classic Lacerda to have a very simple action, like move one worker and like everybody executes in order, right? Uh, but there's so many things that that you have to think about. Uh, in the order that you tackle it is the big puzzle of the game. Yeah, and I think we made a vital mistake when we first played this, which was I think we played it on uh, Happy Sandra mode. Yeah, don't play it with Happy Sandra. Do it with Mean Sandra. Yeah. Mean Sandra. No nice Sandra. I haven't played this, but I would love to. And that was my number 17 game, Kanban EV. My number 17 we've covered on a previous episode of this top 50. It is Dominant Species. This is probably my favorite to play if I have six dedicated players who want to spend four hours on a worker placement area control game. It is such a great game when uh, it's full player count. Like it's, it's really best at five or six. I'm interested in trying Marine Worlds because four player of it could be interesting, but this six player experience of Dominant Species is probably some of my best heavy gaming uh memories just because there's you know so much that goes into the interaction in this game the player interaction is to the extreme you have to pay attention to what everybody else is doing and the entire board state can change fairly quickly each round so it does take a long time because of that but i think it's so high because it's such a unique game i can't think of another one that um is this heavy of a Euro, but supports six players, but actually plays very smoothly. The action selection, as we've covered this before, is kind of everybody places their workers and it just resolves from top to bottom. And it's a, such an elegant implementation of it. Yeah, I love this game. It's very good. I, I too hope the Marine is, you know, at least close to as good as Dominant Species Original is playing at four player i honestly play dominant species at four player not because i think it's better but because it's faster my only criticism is that it is a very long game and you know not many people want to sit there for that long and i don't blame them yeah i think i've only played this the one time and it was very fun took four hours but everyone was into it so i don't think anyone minded i think it came pretty close down at the end there so yeah, just a very solid experience. As as most epic area control games are, if you get six dedicated people who are coming over, I'm bringing some chips and drinks, let's do this thing, you're going to be in for a great time. And that was my number 17 game, Dominant Species. My number 16 game is a worker placement game that has a hilarious theme. This is Best in Show the Board Game. You are showing off your dogs uh, and seeing if you have the best dogs in the pageant. Except for the twist is you're a bunch of goblins and instead of dogs, you're showing off pets of all sorts of varieties, like skeletons and flesh-eating worms and little gremlins, things like that. In Dungeon Pets, you take uh, workers, you place them on a worker placement spot and you collect the reward. Uh, the various rewards are things like different pens to keep your pets in or play toys that you can put in the pen or different types of barriers to make sure your pet doesn't escape then you get food or vegetables to feed your pet and sometimes you buy potions or relics for the pets 
instead of putting imps on the board to take worker placement spots, you can place them on your personal board to do things like scoop out poop from different pens or play with your pets so they don't get sad. The largest mechanic besides worker placement in this game is that you have a hand of cards and each turn you draw a certain amount of cards, um, which are the things your pet needs. At the beginning of the turn, you draw a bunch of cards. And then at the end of the turn, you need to play a bunch of cards and fulfill all the icons on the cards. So let's say that I draw seven cards at the beginning of the turn and three of them say food. I don't have to play all three of my food cards. Let's say I only have to play five cards. I think it's actually always one less. So I'd have to play six cards. And then if I only played two food cards in that six at the end of the turn, then I would only have to pay two food to feed my pets. If I didn't have that food, my pets would become sad and I would lose points when I'm trying to show them uh, at the pageant. Yeah, this creating your own contract fulfillment thing is really weird and a little random at times, but in general, very satisfying when you can successfully make sure your pets are very happy and, and everything kind of works out. It's a really thematic game as well. All the people that are coming to see your pet, they either want to buy them or they just want to see your pet do cool things. And it will be something like a vampire. They want a very sad pet. So they want a bunch of pets where their contracts have not been fulfilled. Or there's a farmer that comes to see your pets and they just want a pet that poops a lot. Um, and so you need to find a pet that does that. And those kind of things are really cool and make the game really come to life for me. I like worker placement. I like quirky themes. This is a pretty heavy game for the theme that it has. And that always helps as well. It's on BGA. That's Dungeon Pets. Yeah, uh, the term dripping in theme gets used quite a lot, but this kind of is that. Uh, it's humorous. It's a classic Vlada. Uh, I'm using that word classic a lot because all the top 20 games, I feel like, are classics. And uh, Dungeon Pets kind of, although probably, well, most definitely not his most popular game by any means, is one that kind of accentuates his design and his personality a lot for me. It is fun it is it's just a weirdly fun game even the very first part of it which is kind of hilarious because it doesn't really fit the theme where you're trying to like divide up where your goblins go and whoever has the most goblins gets priority at that worker spot mm -hmm. um, all the way to hey look at how fancy my pet is would you like to buy my pet it's very fancy that it it goes from like sitting behind your little player screen, trying to figure out the most efficient way to get what you want done to, oh, this is actually a very funny game, and these are some moments that you're just going to share with the other people at the table. You can tell a story with it, but it's, it's deep. It's a strategy game. You know, the better player will win 90% of the time. Um, it's, it's not a silly game just to be silly. It's mm -hmm. a silly game because it adds to it, and it, it makes a, a strategy game very fun. It is silly enough, just like Pursuit of Happiness, where I'm always tempted more by the silly option than what is the correct <laughs> option, you know? Yes, true. I haven't played this, but I generally really like Vlada games, so always open to try it. This is the best one. This is the best silly Vlada game. Right. Um, I think I have another Vlada game coming up on my list. Uh, yeah, I have one other Vlada game coming up on my list. But, but yeah, this, this one's is... lower. <laughs> This one's lower, but it you know you'll you'll realize why when you see oh, hear the other okay. one. But this one really accentuates his style of game, like his silliness, his fun, and the theme coming through, um, but still being just a really really solid game. 
It's like top 20 on my list for, you know what, I just want to turn up to game day and just have some fun. I don't necessarily want to just... As opposed to... I want to win. <laughs> I want to destroy everyone as my minions of the blood god takes the map. I just, I just want to have a good time and have everyone be friends to an extent. That's my number 16, a crazy fun game uh, with a crazy theme, Dungeon Pets. Uh, my number 16 game is the, as I scanned the game, my game list again. Um, yeah, my number 16 game is Chaos in the Old World. Um, I think I'm alone in having this game on the list, let alone this high. Uh, but this, I've, I've played so many games of this back in New Zealand. Uh, I think we have now two copies in my game groups. Um, it's eric lang's best design by far i think it is a asymmetrical uh area control game based in the warhammer the fantasy warhammer uh setting i'm not even a warhammer fan but this game really uh ticks all my boxes you take the role of a servant of a particular god demon god in uh the warhammer world and you're trying to exact influence upon the board. To do that, you're either summoning your minions to do your bidding and to claim influence, or you're going into head-to-head -head battle because more blood sacrifice uh, for your god might be the way to score points there. Um, basically, every faction, and there's four of them, five of you can count the expansion, works very differently to the point of not like, two factions don't even want to play area control. They just want to be in the corner somewhere, casting their spells and creating mischief. Um, it is so explosively asymmetric that it is really up to the players to police themselves. We all thought this game was thoroughly unbalanced when we started playing it because we all approached it like a area control game but there's only really one race that just wants to beat people up everyone else has got a different way they should be scoring points and once you figure that out you kind of understand how the game should flow the areas of on the map get executed in a particular order uh, which means placing influence in certain parts of the map earlier could trigger spells or traps that occur later in the phase um and, you know, you've got an event deck, which most Eric Lang games have that kind of turns rules on its head for a particular round. Um, so I think this is probably the quintessential American dudes on the map game. And I played them all. I played Inish. I played Kemet. I played everything else and nothing holds a candle even in the slightest to how much i enjoy chaos in the old world with three other players who understand how to play how does it compare to say like blood rage which is probably my favorite of eric lang's game yeah i think blood rage is the euro gamers favorite eric lang design i think you'd enjoy blood rage more than chaos in the old world i mean i like drafting part of blood it's rage a bit the more most, yeah controlled i would say like the game is doing a lot of the heavy lifting in blood rage compared to chaos and the old world i mean the name chaos is in the <laughs> title so I, I i going into it i would understand that 
Yeah, we played this uh, a long time ago, and I don't generally enjoy dudes on a map game, so I liked the play that we had as a group, and I thought it was very fun, but not a game I have to revisit. But as a nostalgic experience, I understand why it's so high on your list and a game you would always play. And that was my number 16 game, Chaos in the Old World. My number 16 game is Indonesia, and this is a splatter spelling game. Uh, and it is a heavy, heavy Euro. I don't know if I can even call it a Euro, actually. It is a crazy game to explain, where this is about building industries in Indonesia. Industries that produce and sell rice, spices, microwavable meals named siapfaji, rubber, and oil. So all these goods that cities uh, require to in, in the game. And you can run those companies or run shipping companies that deliver these goods to the cities. And really, the game starts off a little bit slower and definitely ramps up because you're starting these companies and every round they can expand a little bit. And every tile that a company expands produces goods every round. So if your company of rice production has five tiles, you produce five rice and you sell all those goods to the cities. And uh, each turn, if a city has certain number of goods, depending on the on the round, the city grows and demands more of each item. So really, it's about having the most money at the end of the game. It has a couple of unique mechanisms where once a turn, you can upgrade a technology for your all your companies. And a lot of them are just being able to own more companies. Uh, another one is being able to expand faster, like expand multiple tiles at once. Another one is the shipping value of your ships, like how much goods they can ship. And then I think the the one that is the most unique to this game is that the amount of mergers that you can call. Different companies, so two different rice companies can merge and two different shipping companies can merge into one. And they don't even have to be your companies. So <laughs> one of the things you can do in this game is to call a merger of two other players' companies. And everybody will bid for that resulting company. And the previous company owners still get value out of it. They get paid out from like the bid. But yeah, it's super interesting, like very much a heavy economic sim. And yeah, it's up here just because every time I play it is a new set of things to think about. The player aid AB had for this game when we played it <laughs> was a spreadsheet of multiplication tables. <laughs> Yes, because you have to multiply a lot in this game based on the value of the goods and basically like their share valuation tables. And it is kind of an ATXXE game in, in disguise in that it is like based on increasing the value of your company. Yeah, I don't know how I made it through this. Um, <laughs> I think I I want to say I won, but I don't. Maybe that's not true. I think you did. I think and, which is so was, crazy. Yeah. I stumbled through like, you know. I find it hard to play games where I don't understand what the end game goal is in some cases. And this kind of feels that way. You don't know how it's all going to play out. You kind of just have to roll with the punches and hope that what you're doing is in your favor. But it was definitely an experience. And if we sat down a week or two in advance and I prepped for it and I knew the rules maybe a little bit better going in, I would definitely play again. But uh, if someone put this on the table in front of me at a random game night, I would definitely switch tables. It is long and very heavy and a fun game but definitely a, a commitment 
I can't speak upon the gameplay. It's been too long since we played that I can't remember anything outside of calling to companies I didn't own to merge, uh, which was hilarious. But yeah, it is a very fun experience. I use that term a lot, but I want to highlight this as well as uh, another game that will probably appear in someone's top 10 as regardless of rules, the experience of trying to run these independent companies and seeing the chaos that can happen at some person's whim is hilarious and there's probably something, some kind of social commentary that describes what's happening. But yeah, it is reasons why I have no desire to run my own company because, hey, if someone can just on the street call my company to merge with someone else's, that's that's a nightmare. You know, sitting on a rice company and being able to only sell two out of ten, yeah, doesn't feel great. So yeah, that was my number sixteen game, Indonesia. Well, that was another unique fifteen games that we have counted down in our top fifty board game list. As you can see, we're getting more into some of the games that really define us as board gamers. Uh, I love Area Control, AB's a classic, Lacerda, Apologist, and Robin likes fun games. Look at his list. Feudum, Pictomania, <laughs> Dungeon Pets. Just, just fun games. Fun, just a fun-loving guy. And I just like punishment. <laughs> <laughs> you like European punishment. Yeah. So we're getting close, and I'm sure with all of these extended episodes that you've been compiling your own list of your top 50 games, we would love to discuss your experience through some of these. If there's anyone out there who's played Chaos of the Old World with a dedicated group, I would love to hear your experiences. Uh, if you have a better way of teaching Feudum, jump in our Discord channel and let us know how you achieve this. Or if you just have a favorite memory or a favorite prompt playing Pictomania, uh, why don't you share it with us? share us the cards and maybe we'll play along with you otherwise thanks for listening in and we'll see you next week as we count down our top 15 we're nearly there guys as always we are the discard pile all right welcome back to the what how many installments this is the fifth installment in our top 50 games of all time series wait is that the intro I don't know. Usually you intro, so I was gonna let you do it. But yeah, this is a, this is just a blooper intro that we're doing right now. <clears throat> yeah, there's not a lot of blooper yeah. material on these top ten lists. Well, it's because we take it so seriously. It's a serious topic. What is what is what stuff called when it's online? You know, if this is discard pile online edition. Online edition? That that can't be what they call it, right? E. Right? That's like electronic. Yeah. E discard pile. Is it? Uh, virtual. The virtual. Yeah, yeah. Virtual. Virtual. My next game is, in fact, a whole series of games. Um, mm. No, it's not. Never mind. <clears throat> Just trying to do a quick edit yeah. there. Yeah. Just practice. Like there's the more than one of these? I feel like, you know, everyone that has been listening knows what's coming. Yeah. And that could just be the intro. Ugh, everyone knows what's coming. Yeah, we do know what's coming. Ten probably okay games that we like. Probably okay. Yeah, have you seen the, the new ones that are coming out? 
No. They're all based on video games. Ooh, okay. But that's such a big genre. Are we talking Unlock Call of Duty? Uh, Castlevania. Unlock FIFA 24. Oh. You want to change something quick, AB? You want to... No, it's... It hasn't changed in so long. (laughs) (laughs) It's set in stone. Like, why would I change it now? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, true. Good point. And why would anyone change anything on this list, Robin? Right, it's perfect. It is ideal, you might say. Yes. Too late. There's no take-backs in this. Oh, man. We're really starting off with a doozy, aren't we? (laughs) What's the doozy? (laughs) You reordered it. This is your fault. Maybe we put another reorder first. It. He's yeah. reordering his list in real time because I'm having regrets. Me from a month ago making this list, I'm like, what was I thinking? Who was that guy? <laughs> That's my number 17. Every unlock game. Every single one of them. Even the not so great ones. <laughs> Even yeah. the ones with the little clown professor crazy scientist guy. Those are Even pretty the, good. Those are yeah, those are fun. The Santa Claus one. If you are listening and you played the Santa Claus unlock, yeah, you know. So wait, what resource becomes the rosary bead? The chicken. No, the like weapon. no, like what goes what guild inputs and then becomes a rosary bead on a chicken? Oh, uh that's a good question. Uh <laughs> <laughs> and only this context. Like and oh, okay, and like, why is it a rosary bead on a chicken? It's because the monk does something, right? The, yeah, the, the monk does something, and monks don't naturally have any resources tied with them, so that's why they have rosary beads. But yeah, and the farmer it, does, farms it doesn't chicken. make sense. I'm not. There's no. I can't just you know. There's no argument. Oh, what's not to get? The farmer farms chickens. The farmer talks to the monk. The monk is like nice chickens. He has a rosary bead give it to your chicken oh it's like a gift to the chicken it yeah it's like a gift for the chicken yeah oh there's a whole thread on bgg rosary beads on chickens what happens to rosary beads once placed on chickens i know what effect this has on the farmer section but what becomes of the beads are they permanent do they get removed yep good questions those are some good questions yeah good questions on bgg